Good evening and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Now, one thing that defines us as Australians is our egalitarianism. Our culture is less preoccupied with class than most, and that's a good thing. In Land of Dreams, his book about the founding of the New South Wales colony, Australian historian and politician David Kemp says our egalitarianism began on the First Fleet, which set sail from Portsmouth in England in 1787. The sailors and convicts aboard those 11 ships didn't know it, but spending eight months at sea at close quarters forced them to abandon whatever class divisions they had when they embarked and their camaraderie blossomed when they arrived at Port Jackson and were forced to build a colony from scratch together. But every now and again, we are reminded of the limitations of this camaraderie. It's happening again today, which I'll get to in a minute. But first, one of the most famous instances of our latent class division involved the government Kemp, Kemp served in, the Howard government, and especially involved Kemp's colleague, Workplace Relations Minister Peter Reith, who sadly died overnight, aged 72. Reith was a great defender of freedom, fairness, and, dare I say it, Australian egalitarianism although you wouldn't have known it by the way he was portrayed during the event that defined his career, the waterfront dispute of 1998. Workplace reform was a key objective of the Howard government and nowhere was this reform more urgent than on the nation's wharves. A Productivity Commission report in 1998 found shockingly high production costs as a result of the Maritime Union of Australia's stranglehold over the 17 docks around the country operated by a stevedoring company called Patrick. Union members were manipulating the rostering process to pull in triple the award wage rate while locking out casual workers who would have done the same work for the normal rate and even done it more safely. This was just one of the examples that made stevedoring, especially for Australian farmers who were exporting meat, wool and grain, prohibitively expensive. It fell to Reith as Workplace Relations Minister to break the deadlock. His operation was as big as it was bold. He recruited former SAS soldiers as alternative workers then sent in balaclava-wearing security guards with attack dogs to Patrick's 17 sites to clear out the unionists. It didn't take much effort for the media to portray Reith as the malicious conservative determined to oppress hard-working blokes who just wanted to earn a decent day's pay. Reith's plan didn't work. The issue was taken to the federal court and then the high court. It was ruled that Patrick couldn't sack its workers for being unionists. A more reasonable deal was later struck, but the union's catch cry, MUA, here to stay, wound up being prophetic. These days, the MUA is as politically active as ever. Last week, its delegates went to Coonabarabran in New South Wales to join a protest by the Gomorrah people against a proposed coal seam gas project at nearby Narrabri. The MUA's website says, quote, 
The Gomorrah have never ceded sovereignty and given no consent to coal seam gas. They have fought to maintain connection despite violent racist policies of exclusion. The union movement has come out in support of the Gomorrah people identifying that the struggles of First Nations peoples are the struggles of the union movement, unquote. Really? I thought the unions were struggling for their workers' rights and to support the industries that might one day be powered by cheap and abundant coal seam gas from Narrabri. The new Labor government is doing its best to prop up this dying union movement. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and Tony Burke, Reith's successor in the workplace relations portfolio, are trying to impose a new suite of laws governing wages that are scaring the tripe out of employers. One of the laws could empower unions and the Fair Work Commission to force businesses against their will into industry-wide wage agreements. This is a Labor government trying to revive the glory days when it took its orders and a lot of financial backing from unions while helping unions extract excessive wages from employers. Paul Kelly in The Australian says it should make us all worried. Quote, the party presents as a modern economic manager, but the bill is a step into the past. Much of the business community has been shocked by the scale of the try-on. If this is an omen of the future, it's time to worry. Worse, it reveals a contradiction at the heart of Labor's administration, pretending on one hand to be promoting high-tech, high productivity and high wages, while also yearning for a workplace relations system that is more retro than Paul Hogan painting the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The worker-employer divide on which unionism is based is based on a historic fallacy. The Marxist idea that an employer can only maximise profits by screwing employees is the opposite of the experiences of most Australian workers. The most profitable businesses are the ones where bosses and workers have a common interest and can agree on terms that are mutually beneficial. Peter Reith knew that, and so do most workers. And so did, for that matter, the people who built the colonies that made Australia such a great country. Well, the polls in the United States suggest there is absolutely no doubt about the result of today's midterm elections. It should be a Republican red wave from one coast to the other. A survey of 92,000 readers by the Wall Street Journal, Associated Press and Fox News earlier this week found that a massive three quarters of Americans thought the country was heading in the wrong direction under President Joe Biden. More than half of the respondents said Biden didn't even have the mental capacity for the job. Yet some results remain on a knife edge, according to the latest um, published reports. Why is that? Let's get South Australian Senator Alex Antich in to discuss this and a few other topics. Alex, welcome. Hi, Fred. How are you? Good, and thank happy you. Happy election day. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope it's a happy result. What have you made of the midterm elections so far? 
Well, look, I guess I'm just a bit sceptical and cynical these days in my old age uh, about, you know, about these elections because it feels all a little familiar from two years ago when, you know, it was all sort of going to be comfortable for Trump and uh, there was all this sort of mucking around with the media, the, the so-called suppression tactics and then, you know, the curious anomalies and the ballots going south and, you know, polling places shutting down in the middle of the night for no reason. So I, I, you always have to take everything with a pinch of salt, I think, in these sort of elections. They have a unique system over there. But, you, I mean, the, the reports are that, that there is a red wave. The early indications, and, you know, they are only still early indications, are that there is a shift on, but that perhaps it may not be the red wave that, that was predicted. And there are some interesting races going on. At the moment, it looks like um, the uh, Arizona, and they, they say gubernatorial uh, candidate Kari Lake is behind. Which is uh, which is really interesting. She'd kind of very high high profile race, and I and I, I thought from the outset, I thought she was she was sort of predicted to do quite well, but that doesn't look to be the case. And there's some pretty tight races in Pennsylvania with this, you know, curious character John Fetterman and Dr Oz. It's the classic American, um, you know, political race where you've got the, the the TV star versus the kind of the, you know, the strange bloke with the funny thing on the back of his neck. It, it, it's a very American race. But look, we are seeing a shift. It's pretty close, though, at the moment. Neck and neck still. I'm watching um, one of the online uh, uh, summaries just before, and it, it looks like 45 Senate seats apiece at the moment. You need 51 for a majority and probably 52 to be comfortable, given there's, there's a few rhinos floating around in the Senate still for the, for the MAGA side, so the Trump side. So, look, very hard to tell at the moment, but it's, it's certainly they're colourful elections, I tell you. They, they, if nothing yeah. else... You can be grateful. I think that we have what I think, in my view, is some pretty pretty well run elections here in this country without mail in ballots, without uh, you know, without machines counting and no online stuff. And, and let's be grateful for that. Yeah, I want to get back to that in a minute, actually. But just talking about the U.S. election uh, techniques and strategies overall, Michael Knowles, who's a who has a very popular podcast on the Daily Wire, he tweeted a very uh, succinct line about it today saying the longer it takes the longer it takes to vote the counts the less you should trust the result do you mm. do you still think that there, there there is reason to to believe rigging is happening well it's hard to know this time around i assume if you look back to the, the presidential election of 2020 you would say absolutely there is i mean there's, there's irrefutable despite what the the mainstream news want to tell you about the elections of, of 2020 or the presidential election there was clear and irre irrefutable evidence of uh, of you know voter fraud going on and tampering and all sorts of things from who who knows who did it, but uh, probably a lot of different but who knows. But I mean the Maricopa County audit shows that. Uh, of course, the movie Two Thousand Mules uh, shows that in in certain terms. None of that's proven in a court, but they can't get these things to court anyway. So, if any of that is half true, then you'd be worried uh, from the get go. And we saw early on in early the early hours of the morning here. Uh, these curious results in Arizona in the election that I talked about with Kari Lake for, for governor, um, where the machines weren't working in the various polling places. And, you know, she, she Kari Lake suggests that she went and took her team down to vote in a Democrat area and had little, little problem, if any, getting through and none of the machines were, 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 uh, were faulty. So, you know, I mean, none, the unfortunate thing is that there's now just this cloud of suspicion, I think, across all of these elections. And, uh, that's a real shame. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Maricopa County. 
it's it, it, to call it a county is a little bit misleading in Australia because it's it's actually it's got a population of more than four million people. So you know most Australians think oh a county is probably a few thousand, four million people, and it includes the city of Phoenix, which is the fifth biggest city mm -hmm. in the U.S. So it's no small number of votes. Now in 2020, it went to Biden by 50% to 47% to Trump. Um, some of her, some of her observers said the computer tallying was rigged. And now, as you mentioned, the counting machines went down again in Maricopa. And also, as you mentioned, Kari Lake <laughs> is struggling. Now, Kari Lake is an absolute superstar. And Arizona, I thought Arizona was, was backing her to the hilt. How can this anomaly be, Alex? Well, look, it's not over. I mean, there's still votes to come. I think at last count there were something like 60% uh, of the votes in or something like that. But And I haven't looked closely at, you know, where they're coming from and what that means. It's all a bit foreign for Australians to be doing that, where we can perhaps do that more in an Australian election. So, uh, so I, look, I don't know, but it, it strikes me as being incredibly curious. She seemed to be the standout performer. She's outstanding with the media. There seemed to be a red wave sweeping through Arizona. Uh, and then all of a sudden, these sort of uh, anomalies in the morning, uh, who knows? But I'd be incredibly frustrated if I was a voter in America. I, I, I don't think, and you know, I think there's always been a little bit of nefarious behaviour in American elections dating back 100 years. Yeah. But it seems from the outside that um, that's on steroids now. Yeah, and as you say, well, things that happen in America usually tend uh, to happen here just five or ten years later. Politics is increasingly mm. rancorous and partisan in Australia as well, not quite as yep. bad as the US. But do you think we in Australia should cut this, head this one off at the pass and start yeah. introducing uh, voter ID, for example? Yeah, and a great question. And I think this is a bit like the issues of the freedom issues that we've seen in the last couple of years. There are things in our country that we never thought would, would be negotiable that we just effectively caved in on last year with you know, medical autonomy and freedom of movement and freedom of speech, even in some cases in the medical profession. So you know, these things are very, very tenuously held and, and they only exist when people take them seriously and protect them. So we, we absolutely have to be careful and cautious about how we treat our electoral system. Of course, COVID was used as the vehicle for mail-in ballots and wherever mail-in ballots go, problems arise. So, you know, being live to those issues and understanding, of course, that it's anything but a fair election is bad for both sides. So, you know, it, it, it can cut both ways, this sort of stuff, and, and we've got to be really careful here. Yeah, the Democrats say democracy is on the ballot, but I think democracy is getting... Uh, is, is a bug inside the computer machines that are counting the ballots, to be honest. Anyway, staying in Australia, the criminal who hacked into the Medibank database has started releasing personal information on Medibank customers. This is really, uh, this is really disturbing to those customers. Mm. Some of that is, is quite private information and some of it is valuable to people who want to uh, steal your identity. Now, the government and all major corporations seem pretty powerless against this kind of criminality, Alex. What can they do? Well, look, this highlights the problem with having information online, and it comes back to this issue about convenience and security. You know, people saying, well, look, isn't it convenient to have all of your information tucked away? It's like you're having all of your passwords on your computer only for your computer to get hacked. Um, you know, there's always a downside to this. And the, the first thing that comes to mind for me is um, this: the frailties of the system, that, that everything can be, can be hacked. I saw... Uh, a, a Twitter user called Kim.com, who you might be familiar with, many of your 
listeners might be familiar with who's a very interesting commentator on Twitter who, who made the observation that in his career as a hacker uh, and then as a consultant to business using those hacking skills, he'd never, ever seen a government or corporate or private um, computer system that he couldn't hack. Everything, there were backdoors in everything. So really, you just have to assume that once your information is collated in a, in a central place like that, it's like bees, bees to the honey for, uh, for hackers and criminals. And this is my great fear about a digital ID system. Um, you know, we know that governments are even less effective at putting these protections in than the private sector can be. And we're seeing the private sector getting hacked. Uh, look, I don't know what the answer is here because I think these are very technical questions. But I think being live to the fact that collating information in a central database like this is a really dangerous thing. And you know, once that information's out there, it's really, really, really hard to combat. It's, uh, you know, I, I feel very sorry for the people that have been affected by this, but, you know, I would say um, there is need for regulation in this area. And, and, and look, once again, back to the issue of digital ID, I, I, we have to resist this change. Uh, it is going to be a disaster. Yeah, and central bank digital currencies for that matter too. I once met an IT professional who, who told me that the demand for IT security experts was always two or three steps behind the criminals who were at the frontier of, of hacking. So I think the security industry is, is actually, you know, under a lot of pressure to keep up with the criminals. Is that right? Yeah, it looks, sounds like, and that was the point that this commentator was making, was often the hackers are people who are recruited by the companies in order to try and stay one step ahead, uh, you know, so to make sure that they're on the cutting edge of the technology. And the other point that was made was that a lot of the uh, a lot of the hacks from an intelligence point of view are backdoor hacks built into the hardware. So in many instances, there's not much anyone can do to stop those who really have a will to, to get through. So, you know, which, which might well, um, you know, sort of rule out some of the kind of base level uh, criminal work, but certainly the intelligence services have ways and means. So, Look, I, I, I just don't know. I think this is a, you know, an increasingly inevitable but very, very dangerous and concerning um, part of our future online. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Now, finally, Sweden is being vindicated for not locking down or forcing vaccines on people during COVID. Uh, Professor Johan Jacecki, who advised the Swedish government, told one media outlet recently, this is a great quote, the Swedish government decided early in January that the measures we should take against the pandemic should be evidence-based. And when you start looking Ooh. around at the measures being taken by different countries, you find very few of them have a shred of evidence. Now, Alex, I know I might be referring to the government uh, that you were once a part of, but were the decisions made by the Australian federal and the state governments, for that matter, based on evidence, in your opinion? Well, look, I always look to the uh, to the decisions that were made locally by our, our health bureaucracies, particularly in, in South Australia, which were really the tip of the spear on a lot of these decision makings. And it, I mean, I actually asked for the evidence uh, in, a, in a freedom of information application six or well, probably almost a year ago now, but I, I got the documents something like three months ago or four months ago or something, time flies. But what it showed was that the evidence for masking, for lockdowns and, you know, for mandates just didn't exist. They were making it up as they went along in many instances. And, uh, you know, so that is the frightening thing. Remember, we, we follow the science, but it just depends on whose science uh, you're listening to and, and who's, who's making the science. So, you know, I mean, this was always a likely scenario. Taiwan, I think, did some similar things in terms of, you know, making sure that they kept their... Uh, different means of going about it. But I mean, we're now seeing pretty frightening stats coming out. We've got, a, I think, a 17.3% increase in excess mortality in this country here. 
Uh, we went through the lockdowns. We went, Melbourne had 260-something days of lockdowns to, to no effect. And now we're seeing these pretty predictable stats out of Sweden that uh, they fared better than anyone without locking down. It shows me the hubris of the human mind and the, and the, and the bureaucracy to, to say, well, we can stop this. We, you know, we, can, we can resist thousands of years of you know, uh, epi- epidemiological and uh, you know, uh, sort of history to say we are the ones that are smarter and we can stop it with masks and some lockdowns. Well, you know, it's just it was always a fallacy. It was always foolish, and we're now starting to see that. So, um, look, let's just hope lessons are learned and we don't see it again. I, I think that these measures were all more more about control and always were, uh, and less about uh, you know trying to trying to sort of flail around because. You know, there, were, there were many things that never happened. The use of other therapies uh, and the insistence on on one form of uh, attack, lockdowns and mandates, and they didn't work. You said it revealed to you some insight to the human mind. What it revealed to me was how quickly people divided themselves into dictators and those who are happy to be dictated to. I, mm. I didn't realise Australians of all people would uh, would happily divide themselves into those two groups. Yeah, it's phenomenal, wasn't it, when you think that it was very early on we were all in this together and then it all became we were all in it together as long as you do what you're told. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it really it was, a, it was an incredible experiment in human psyche, the one that sadly had so much of an impact on so many people's lives, job losses and lives lost and terrible stuff. But, you know, ultimately um, there, were, there, I think, have been many science experiments like this, like the one from the, I forget, the university where the uh, people were dealing out electric shocks and, and under the belief that it was almost killing people on the other side of the, on the other side of the fence and, uh, and were continuing on anyway because they were told to do it. I mean, there were just all of those hints of the worst factors of human nature in this period. Uh, and let's hope that we never see it again, although I have my very strong suspicions we will. In fact, the bureaucrats are telling us when to expect it now. They're so careful with the science that they now know exactly that we're getting another wave and you'll need your fifth booster. So that's fantastic. I wonder if they can tell me the cross-lotto numbers as well. Maybe they're making those up. <laughs> well, just before you go, there was a piece in The Atlantic last week by uh, a woman called Emily Oster calling for an amnesty uh, between the various mm. sides of COVID. Where do you stand on that? Well, I suspect we share a bit of common ground on this one. I, I, uh, I love the hope that, that there'd be an amnesty, and I don't even really know what that means. It, you know, in a sense, we've seen two years of just shocking behaviour and, uh, you know, people being thrown to the ground by police, people being, old ladies being pepper sprayed. Most of this comes out of Melbourne, mind you. People losing their jobs. People have still lost their jobs. There are still mandates, both private and public, in South Australia from companies and, uh, and the government. So... You know, I I have really I, I, what I want to see is uh, a, through the fullness of time a proper exploration of this in you know in a, in, a, in a royal commission if it need to be although I suspect we'll never see that so that we can really get to the bottom of what happened here and uh, I don't see any need for any amnesties. It's a bit like you know um, you know someone committing a crime and then saying oh come on let's just call it you know. <laughs> I, I think we need to. I just think we need to now have full accountability for the decision makers, whoever they may be, in whatever capacity they may be, uh, and that does not look like an amnesty to me. No, that's right. And as we both both observed, we need to understand what aspects of human nature led us down that dark path and and learn never to go down there again. Alex Antich, thanks for your time. Thanks, Fred. Good to talk to you. That's South Australian Senator Alex Antich.
The red mirage is what happens during the early stages of election vote counting in the United States when it looks like Republicans are winning. This is superseded a few hours later by the blue shift, which is when Democrat votes routinely emerge in larger numbers to eventually take the result. This is all very real because there is a Wikipedia page about it, so we know it's reliable. It's also discussed very earnestly on MSNBC. Take a look. Look for a possible rerun of the red mirage from 2020. And Joe, your voters will remember the red mirage of 2020, where Democrats warned exactly what you're talking about, that on election night, Republican votes may be heavier by the time mail-in votes where Democrats are heavier, uh, the result will change. And of course, we saw that. We saw President Biden becoming President Biden on Saturday. So Democrats yesterday warning of a red mirage too. And that is that tonight, because of the mechanics of how votes are counted, Republicans may look like they're doing better than they're doing. So this is part of the new attention to the mechanics of vote counting in these briefings, some of them for journalists, some of them off the record, some of them for donors and supporters, uh, talking a very granularly in a way that we never have about the timeline of vote counting, the mechanics of vote counting, with Democrats all using it to make the preemptive case that this may take a while. This may take a while. So how long is that while? You heard the president say this the other night. He has been very clear on this as well. We may not know all the winners of elections for a few days. Why is it only Democrats say this? Well, that's because those votes that are counted late tend to be for Democrats. And why is that? Well, the argument is that these are mail-in votes and that mail-in votes, for some reason, always skew heavily towards Democrats. Coincidentally, they are also easy to manufacture. But the key thing here, and the reason this is a classic case of woke watch, is the language they use. The real votes are a mirage. The fake votes are a shift. One is imagined and the other is real. That's the benefit of being woke. Not only do you get to manufacture election results, you also get to redefine reality. The latest from the US election is that the key seats in the Senate are still too close to call. But as Daily Wire podcaster Michael Knowles succinctly says, the longer it takes to count the vote, the less you should trust the result. Well, I mentioned the unholy alliance between unions and the federal government earlier, but the relationship between the Queensland government and the established union movement in that state is even worse. The Labor government has been trying to freeze out a new independent union called the Nurses Professional Association of Queensland. The NPAQ is not part of the ACTU, but it is part of a group called Red Union where similar organisations for police and teachers are also being established. The NPAQ offers an alternative to the traditional Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation. You'd think a Labor government would applaud this, as it offers workers choice about who can represent them and forces unions to be as efficient as possible with their members' funds.
Well, to see if that hypothesis is correct, let's bring in former New South former Queensland Premier Campbell Newman, who's right across all this. Campbell, welcome. G'day, Fred. Thanks for having me again. Campbell, firstly, yeah, how, well, it's it's yeah. How do these rebel unions differ from the established ones? First. Well, basically, this group, uh, Red Union, uh, started, I think, about six or seven years ago and were putting forward initially to nurses that uh, they could do a few things for them. One, they could provide professional indemnity insurance, which has always been a big selling point of the the, 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 the nurses and midwives union up here, but also they could represent uh you know, members before the Queensland Industrial Relations Commission or in, you know, things to do with, uh, you know, unfair dismissal and, and the like. So they offered a service. Their service, their membership was $440 roughly a year, whereas the um, the incumbent union, shall we call them, the, the Labor-aligned union who, who supports Labor Party campaigns, et cetera, uh, with election donations, they charge about 760 So what's happened is initially they were treated as a joke uh, by the Labor Party and by the Nurses and Midwives Union. Then they were treated with derision and abuse. And finally, when things started to be very apparent that they were, you know, the, the, the incumbent was bleeding members to the NPAQ, um, and indeed other unions started to sit up and take notice, like the Teachers Union, uh, what did they do? They went to the Labor Party, who they control, uh, and they actually dialled up some quite... Uh, odious and reprehensible legislation, which essentially bans anybody else from uh, being in competition to the incumbent unions that are all aligned, of course, to the Australian Labor Party and give them election donations. So well, they've but hang on, that but, legislation but, through the parliament. Yeah. Campbell, before we move to the legislation, just quickly, a, a particular point about the NPAQ. I think it fought against vaccine mandates, which is a pretty important factor. Absolutely. So what's your opinion about that? Was that a good good strategy for the NPAQ, sticking oh, up for its members? Oh, yeah. Well, absolutely, because you look at the, the uh, incumbent union, whether they be, you know, the teachers' union or the, um, the, the nurses' and midwives' union, what did they do? Well, they're aligned to the government. They became spokespeople for the government. They pushed the government's line. You would think a union would defend, say, a... Uh, a member who had a conscientious objection to getting a shot, but no, they didn't. So the incumbent unions totally betrayed their members, whereas the Red Union, affiliated a group of unions, they actually went out quite stridently and fought for members to actually not get the jab. So that's one of the reasons, by the way, I support them. Yeah. So how did the government try to shut them down? Well, they put it in legislation through the parliament, which uh, has now, I think, uh, passed. Uh, I'm not sure if it's got royal assent yet, but uh, it's it's pretty odious stuff. Uh, it, 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 it's very complicated, of course, but the effect of it is really is to say that um, you can only have the incumbent unions. And I'll just stop right there and say, say this. I think this needs to be essentially uh, appealed in, you know, through the courts. You know, it has to be taken on. And I'll tell you why. Because firstly, we have in the state of Queensland uh, a, a set of legislation in different areas that refers to um, our international obligations um, with the International Labour Organisation. Now, for, for, for your viewers, it might be strange that a, a conservative 
former a, a, a conservative former premier would be quoting the ILO, but this is important. So this is stuff that the Labor Party and the unions movement love. You know, the International Labor Organization, their international sort of obligations about how we conduct, you know, relationships in the workplace in Australia. Well, freedom, so freedom of Association. Eighty-seven. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. ILO Convention eighty-seven yep. says in black and white that you can be free to form, forms the word key word here, and join a union of your choice. So that is absolutely referenced in the Queensland Industrial Relations legislation. It's also referenced in the human rights legislation that's been put through by the Palaszczuk government. And so then they've done this. So, so tell me, Campbell, what's has the Human the... Rights Commissioner going to do in Queensland? Yeah. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. The, the Human Rights Commissioner in Queensland or the, the federal Australian Human Rights Commissioner, I guess they've been on the phone to uh, the boss of the NPAQ, Jack Maguire, have they? Well, I don't think they have, from what I hear, <laughs> but let's just deal with that. Firstly, the Human Rights Commissioner in Queensland, a statutory appointment, should be looking at this, should be actually taking a case to the Supreme Court, funded by their office, to deal with this. Turning to the federal level, the Federal Human Rights uh, Act, um, also in its schedule, the schedules to the legislation refers to the same uh, International Labor Organization uh, Convention. Again, I stress this, Australia signed up to this. This, this ILO Convention 87, as I understand it, was uh, first put through in about no, uh, 1948. I'm not sure when Australia and Queensland ratified it, but clearly Australia and Queensland did. So what does it mean? And I say to those bureaucrats who have in my view, a solemn uh, legal uh, requirement to actually administer the law, I say to them, what are you going to do about this? This is clearly in breach of our international obligations. And, you know, Fred, we know the, the left. The left love to lecture us about our international obligations on climate change or, you know, wh whatever it may be. So... Let's just see if this is just not enough, if it's if they're fair dinkum or it's just not well, the case of their blatant, breathtaking hypocrisy instead of double standards. Oh, it's another day in paradise when you're talking about breathtaking hypocrisy. Now you've established that that there is a human right at stake here and that the various human rights commissions really should be across this. But it also sounds like a fairly clear case, correct me if I'm wrong of political corruption? Well, I, I believe in, in, in the true sense of the world, this is, how can this not be corruption of the processes of government when you have a union movement who have clearly, um, uh, as I said, initially they thought it was a joke, then they became somewhat abusive and derisive, then when they bled members, they realised they they, the huge amounts of money was at stake. I mean, when thousands of members leave you because you don't stand up for your members and you charge them too much money, then you've got a problem. And they were losing the battle of the hearts and minds. The, the Red Union was just hoovering up disgruntled members. So they went to Labor. Uh, they give donations to the Labor Party. They own the Labor Party in this state. And they said, look, you've got to fix this. So wouldn't it be interesting to see what... Um, comes up in terms of RTI applications uh, that could be put in by members of the public between uh, members of the Palaszczuk Cabinet, 
members of parliament uh, and union officials who throw their weight around. And let's not see the cover-up that we saw last time where a minister used a private email address. I also speak to uh, FOI, sorry, RTI, as it's called up here, Right to Information Officers in the Queensland Government. You need, when you get these RTI applications, you need to remember your solemn legal obligations and you need to make sure that any Labor minister or uh, who tries to circumvent RTI legislation by by, by saying, oh, that wasn't official business. If they were being lobbied on legislation before the Queensland Parliament, it needs to be coughed up. Uh, we saw a, a Labor minister in the last few years being caught out actually discussing business uh, through non-official channels, and luckily that was discovered. So let's not see that sort of uh, action uh, attempted again. Yeah, well, I hope I hope um, someone through RTI or FOI can get to the bottom of that. But still, staying well, on. Uh... Well, Fred, just Fred, just to, before we move off it, Fred. I mean, let me just draw this out for people. Imagine this: if you know a member of a conservative government uh, was involved uh, in uh, owning shares in a company, for example, or had done consultancy work for a company and then were lobbied by that company about legislation that was before the parliament, and they didn't totally declare it, recuse themselves, for example. Yeah, we'd have, by the way, we'd have the whole Labor Party out of the parliament, of course. But if they, if, they, if they then were involved in the passing of such legislation, a cabinet decision, or then the passing of legislation in the House, the media, the mainstream media would go bonkers. They would, they would say, this is, this is, this is terrible. And indeed, it is terrible in terms of what's happened. The Labor Party passing legislation to simply protect unions that weren't working hard enough for their members. Yeah, well, that analogy is pretty much on the money, Campbell, I've got to say. Now, still staying with the Queensland medical industry, there's some talk that Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk will make a payroll tax grab at GP clinics. What's that all about? Well, this is quite an interesting one, Fred, and I'm... I don't know how I can answer this particularly simply, but I'll put it like this. Very quickly, in the last two years, there was a case in New South Wales where there were a number of medical practices who provided support services, admin services for a whole number of doctors. And what the doctors did is they then uh, sent, if you like, a, a monthly or weekly, or weekly invoice for their services to the clinic. The clinic received the money coming in from Medicare when they bulk billed patients. They took 30% of it out and then they remitted 70% to the, to the GPs. What happened was the uh, the New South Wales revenue people had a win in the, 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 the tribunal that looked at this said, ah, uh, this is essentially... Um, you know, pay, uh, you know, wages going to employees. And essentially they found that the clinics needed to pay payroll tax. So that was quite uh, quite a, a shock to those medical practices and indeed the broader medical industry. But when it was then appealed, it still went down in flames. The medical practice, I understand, has got to pay back payroll tax to the tune of $800,000. What's happened now, though, is in Queensland, the AMAQ have gone, oh, my God, Queensland, uh, Queensland government, who are strapped for cash, are going to come after us. And they're saying quite rightfully that it could really impact on delivery of medical services. But I will say this, Fred, it's a bit interesting the doctors to suddenly wake up and say, oh, payroll tax is bad. You know, payroll yes. tax is something I want to get rid of as Premier because 
uh, it is a disincentive to employ people. I wish doctors who constantly say, spend more money, spend more money, spend more money on medical services, like it's a bottomless pit, would wake up that it's got to be paid for. And it's only natural that, you know, sort of money-hungry, rapacious politicians like this Queensland government would actually look, ha-ha, here's another pot of gold. Well, let's go after the doctors. They've got the money. Yeah. Uh, they haven't been paying payroll tax potentially, and they're going to go. So I'm I'm sympathetic. It will have an impact, uh, but I wish the doctors would look at the broader argument as well. Why don't they start lobbying for an end to payroll tax and this uh, wasteful state government to reduce their spending accordingly? How about that? Yeah, that would be there's... a much more uh, a positive public policy stance to take. Indeed, there's plenty of plenty of places for the Queensland government of all state governments to be cutting cutting its expenditure too. Now let's just move on to uh, the ABC, which I know is another favourite topic of yours, Cam Campbell. The Janet Albrechtson has a great piece in the Australian Today about how the ABC is a essentially a bit of a protection racket for the trans lobby. She says, quote, the taxpayer funded ABC behaves as an activist lobby for the trans community, not as an impartial news organisation. These reporting failures are compounded by clueless leadership, unquote. Now, what, what Janet is referring to is the ABC's failure to report the most recent developments in the trans issue. And that is that mostly that the Tavistock Clinic in, in Britain has been forced to close down. And the Tavistock uh, Clinic, as you probably know, is one of the biggest trans um, clinics in the world. Now, do you think uh, Janet Orbrexen is correct that the ABC is being, not being impartial enough on this topic? I think so. And, and Janet always puts forward a very uh, well-considered, well-argued and rational sort of point of view. Um, I mean, by the way, let me be very, very clear. I have absolutely no problem with someone who is an adult who decides that they are, you know, they're, they're the wrong gender and wants to change. What Janet, though, is referring to and what I agree with her on is the idea that young people uh, pre-puberty uh, pre uh, are being, you know, or have been in the UK example, being prescribed... Um, you know, drugs, puberty blockers that actually allow their gender to be changed um, before they're actually an adult um, and without considering alternatives. And that's now been quite a scandal in the UK. The ABC, though, here, and this is what she is pointing out, here in Australia, the ABC haven't really reported that. They've given, you know, lip service to it. Yeah, I think it's, there's just been an isolated report or two about that. And it is a very important issue because, you know, again, I have no problem with people wanting to change their gender if they are grown-ups, you know, but the idea that we we just let young people uh, just go and do this before the, you know, they're of age, let's say, is, is quite shocking. I mean, I, in my own sort of experience, have known, for example, of a, of a, of a young woman when she was, you know, uh, probably about eight, seven, eight, nine, she wanted to be a boy. Um, and there was no doubt about that. Now she's a happily married young woman. You know, so she... Well, know, I if, think... If, yeah. if, if it had been a different family, different yep. circumstances... Uh, there might have been a rather uh, a rather sort of irreversible decision taken there. Interesting. But can I just yeah. say, Fred, one other issue about the ABC this week is why is it that the ABC, publicly funded, will not reveal the remuneration of their most senior people? Now, if you are a director or 
a senior executive of the Combank or BHP or any of the top companies in Australia, your name will be there, your name in black and white with your full remuneration details. If you're a politician, everyone knows. If you're a senior public servant in most jurisdictions these days, you know pretty accurately. Not the ABC. Why not? It's time to end the cover-up, mate. It is absolutely time. Why do they think? And to think that they they then are able to go and do stories going, oh, it's terrible that, you know, some politician or, you know, some big name in the business community is being paid the big bucks. Well, what about the ABC, mate? It's our money and we deserve to know. I think that's a fair reflection of what I'd call the contempt the ABC has for most ordinary Australians and taxpayers. Well, Campbell, always a pleasure to talk to you, mate, and uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Fred. That's former Queensland Premier Campbell Newman. Well, we say often on this show that Australia's constant genuflection to green religion, in particular net zero emissions and renewable energy targets, means our energy prices are among the highest in the world. Yet we are a country rich with resources and minerals. If anything, we should have the lowest energy prices in the world. But politicians continue to swallow the line on renewables and shut down coal-fired power plants. What does this lead to? Well, if you are a business person operating a large company, why on earth would you continue to invest or do business in Australia when your costs are ballooning? Basically, higher electricity prices are over and over-regulation are suffocating business. If it's hard to be profitable here in Australia, then big corporations will ship jobs offshore. It's a sad reality, and it has been reported again in today's Australian newspaper. Australian billionaire Anthony Pratt of Pratt Industries, son of the great Richard Pratt, has pledged to invest US $5 billion in America over the next decade. It's part of the biggest ever expenditure strategy for his manufacturing empire. By the way, that's more than $7 billion in Aussie dollars. Imagine all the jobs and commercial activity and investment like that could generate here in Australia. The first move of this investment is a US $500 million paper mill in the state of Kentucky. Pratt's next investment will be to spend US $200 million on a new factory in the suburb of Cedar Hill in Dallas, Texas, which will be Pratt's 71st factory in the United States. It must be said that Pratt also invests big in Australia. Indeed, last month he signed a deal to build a new $500 million glass food and beverage container recycling and manufacturing plant in Yatla on the Gold Coast. His company is also building a corrugated box factory south of the Brisbane airport. But the interesting point to come out of this American spend is that he says, quote, in America, steady growth is forever, unquote. He's right. And yes, they have a huge population and many more consumers uh, in the US than than we do in Australia. But doing business in America is just that much more rewarding especially after Donald Trump spent four years deregulating most industries. Biden, of course, revoked a lot of that deregulation, but not all of it. 
our politicians here in Australia need to start winding back regulations that strangle business and start admitting that the only way to power an economy is with fossil fuels or nuclear. It's our one huge advantage if only governments would get out of the way and let business get on with it. And just before I go, Meghan Markle has been covering all the big issues in her famous podcast. Or at least they are the big issues if you're a woman who's into labelling other women. She's talked to Paris Hilton about bimbos, Serena Williams about being ambitious, Mariah Carey about being a diva, and someone I've never heard of who I assume is black and angry about being black and angry. Surely after nine podcasts investigating different archetypes, you'd think she'd run out of pigeonholes to stick her beak into, but no. Yesterday, as Europe teetered on the verge of nuclear war, as Democratic election officials were anticipating voting machines in key Republican counties breaking down just as voters arrived at the booths, and as the world's leaders gathered in Europe to predict the end of life as we know it because of climate change, Megan dropped the latest and arguably most controversial in her series about female labels. It's a label she refuses to even speak, referring to it by the polite B word. And no, it's not beautiful. Like the N word, it can only be uttered by people who fit the category. A category from which Megan curiously excludes herself. Not her guest though, who is some comedian who went, on, who went to college with uh, Megan in Chicago and who says all the right things about being amazing and powerful and provocative. Megan's guests quote unquote, embrace the B word because, well, because they can. The circular logic of it all seems to escape them. They revel in the behavior that they say defines them as the B word, then pretend to be defiant when they are allegedly described as such. Curiously, they don't go into much detail about what makes them a B word, although their propensity to endlessly talk about themselves left this humble listener in no doubt. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Alan Jones is still taking a break after having surgery, so it's an extended version of the Fred Paul Show every night this week. Speaking of podcasts, you can catch my past episodes of my show wherever you get your digital downloads. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock here on ADH TV. Good night.